This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zero. Did you miss the Zero Roadshow when it came to your city? What if I told you you could still attend a Zero Roadshow event? On June 4th, 5th, or 6th, you can attend the Zero Roadshow online. That's right, you can attend a Roadshow event via your web browser. At the Zero Roadshow online, you'll learn how your practice can benefit from the full power of the Zero platform and even earn CPE credit. To register for free, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash zero roadshow. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.com forward slash X-E-R-O-R-O-A-D-S-H-O-W. And don't forget to register for ZeroCon. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. What's new, David? What's new? Uh, short week, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like there was not a lot of major, 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 major news. There was a event, though. QuickBooks Connect happened in Australia. Yes. It was in Melbourne this time, I think, not Sydney. And so we've got some news about QuickBooks Live, the gift that keeps on giving. It's coming to Australia. Wow. So another new week, another <laughs> a major QuickBooks Live announcement. That's, yeah, so, that's big. I, you know, I, I really want to touch on those numbers that we talked about last week because it's been sitting with me since Friday, how big this is, right? Could we, could we pause you there before you get into how big it is? Could we get into, uh, we have two reviews that came in. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, what are the reviews? All right. So we got two reviews. I'll read this one. It's from uh, jazz fun two. Uh, it's five stars. And now, you know, the rest of the story, David and Blake and true Paul Harvey style show us a behind the scenes details of the topical headline stories from most media outlets. The insight and depth of knowledge is refreshing. And to hear a podcast where they can laugh at themselves as well as the industry makes the listening lively. In an industry fueled by technology, AI, blockchain frenzy, Blake and David give us honest perspective. Always waiting for the next one to drop so I can catch up. The Cloud Accounting Podcast is a must listen if you really want a reality check on what's happening in the cloud. Awesome. Thank you, Jazz Fun. That's uh, Jan, right? I, I think so. Thanks, Jan. We got another review as well. Two great guys keeping you updated on relevant accounting stuff. What a great podcast find for staying up to date on all things accounting. I especially have appreciated the accounting app news updates. Keep them coming. Your fan, M.M. Thank you, M.M. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now you can get into your big numbers. All right. So sorry. Yeah, I jumped the gun there. So we were talking about uh, QuickBooks Live last week and the news that Rich Priest announced on the QBO show that QB Live is expanding from the current 50 pro advisors to 500 pro advisors within about a year. Is that right, David? Did I get that right? I think he, he, he mentioned like within the next nine months. Okay. Within the next nine months. Which is crazy fast. Yeah, that's the goal. And these pro advisors, of course, are not going to all be working in the Boise office. They're going to be distributed around the country like TurboTax Live, similar. Well, specifically, they're going to use the first 500 are going to use existing TurboTax Live pro advisors because they're set up and ready to go. Got it. So... 500 pro advisors and Rich Priest gave us some numbers about the number of customers they have. And it looks like the ratio of a pro advisor to customer is something around 22, 23. So let's just call it 25. Let's say a pro advisor on QB Live could serve 25 customers and each of these customers pays $400 per month. So 500 times 25 is 12,500 QuickBooks Live customers paying $400 per month that equals $5 million per month, which is $60 million per year in QuickBooks Live revenue. That would put QuickBooks Live at number 73 on the 2019 list of top 100 accounting firms, according to Accounting Today, right behind Singer Lewak, which has 10 offices, 43 partners, and five, uh, 305 total employees. 
Okay, so just to, to be clear, so last week, or last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, a month ago, whatever, Intuit was not a bookkeeper and accounting firm. No, no, software developer. Now they're becoming, now they will basically are becoming a bookkeeping firm. Yeah. In, in a strange way, accounting firm. And they're going to be one of the biggest instantly. Well, within nine months. Yeah, a top 100 firm wow. within nine months. And they're not calling themselves an accounting firm though, right? Because it's a... I don't know exactly what they're describing it as. I don't really recall. It's kind of indefinite, but a platform right, to connect businesses and pro advisors. But hey, isn't that what an accounting firm is anyway? It's a, it's a brand that connects, in most cases, it connects a business owner who needs services, tax, accounting, consulting to a service provider, typically a partner in the firm who, in a traditional firm, owns their own book of business. And this is basically the same concept. Right? It's the same Just, model, right? Because if I have a firm, I have my own in-house pro-advisors that I might be paying 40 bucks an hour yeah. to do the books for my clients. Yeah. And then I'm taking a piece of whatever I'm charging the client. So whatever they call it, I, I, I'm calling it an accounting firm. I think I, that's what it is. I could agree with your point of view on that. Yeah. And, so, and even if it's a slightly smart number, because I think your estimate is going off of each pro-advisor is handling 25 customers. And I think right now, like the current numbers they released, we talked about last episode, it's about 19 to 20. So even even at those numbers, it's probably going to still be about a $50 million a year business. So where does that put them on the top 100? Is it still top 100? Oh, yeah, definitely in the wow. top 100. So just for fun, project this out year two and year three. <laughs> just quickly off the top of your head, like, like, are they a top 10 accounting firm in year two? Uh, like, yeah, I, well, I just know like to get into the 50s, you got to be over 100 million. So yeah, I mean, I, I could easily see Intuit becoming a, a top 25 firm. Who does it d- disrupt then? Is this, is this disrupting the average pro advisor, right? Or is this disrupting bigger firms that are well, trying to do 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 clients? I don't think it's disrupting the big firms because I don't think most of them are dealing with small clients like this. Okay. And their fees are coming from mid-sized businesses, large businesses. Okay. It will undercut them in that they're not going to be able to get a foothold into in this space. What it really is doing is taking all of these small pro-advisors and aggregating them into what is essentially a large firm. That's what it seems like to me. So it. it's, disrupt, it's, it's disrupting the independent bookkeepers for sure. I, I, I think it's going to be very hard for independent bookkeepers to compete with QuickBooks Live. And small firms, small CPA firms, small EAs, just bookkeeping firms competing. Like, How do you compete with uh, $400 a month for bookkeeping? And this is why the discussion going on in Australia right now is interesting. You sent me a tweet from Sholto McPherson, our friend over uh, in Australia, asking, he asked you, David, he said, what is your take on QuickBooks Live? Is it a watershed moment? Or, uh, or business as usual? Will it replicate the impact of TurboTax Live? And knowing what I know about the cost of labor in Australia, I feel like it's going to be even harder for Australian bookkeepers to compete with QuickBooks Live if, if it goes out there at the price of $400 per month US. Well, I, maybe I, I'm wrong. So, and just put some context on that. So it looks like uh, Schloto tweeted this during QuickBooks Connect, during yeah. uh, one of the keynote uh, talks a futurist was on stage talking about disruption and he just yep. found it ironic that it was minutes after Intuit just talked about QuickBooks Live being launched in Australia because because he feels like that's kind of going to be disruptive to the 
people sitting in the audience. Yeah. And so there's a little uh, back and forth between Schlotto and Paul Mesner about, you know, maybe this is not going to impact that audience, et cetera. So when he kind of asked me like what my take is, I think one thing I would say Australians don't understand about Cooper's Live is how successful TurboTax Live was. And we talked about that last week on the podcast, right? right. TurboTax Live might be the most successful TurboTax offering in 25 years. Mm-hmm. Call it a bundle, call it whatever you want. It's a way to sell TurboTax and it's selling better than ever. And the other thing I think they don't understand is the marking machine of Intuit. Everywhere you turned, you saw TurboTax Live. Yep. It was uh, on all the Super Bowl commercials. It was on all the college football championship bowl games. For about a six-week period, you saw TurboTax Live everywhere, right? And I don't think they understand the Intuit machine, right? And how those wheels get going and it's going to happen. Like they, they, Acting like this won't have an impact, I think, is very naive. We'll find out. And going to your comment as far as like the cost of labor, right, in Australia and the pricing model for it there, in a way, this could actually possibly disrupt Australia more. And my, my, the logic on that is I think a lot of these firms in Australia, they're outsourcing a lot of labor already. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are doing kind of, they're using some sort of outsourced labor to run their firm. So now, in a way, this is competing directly with those. Right. So if you have a bookkeeping firm and you're using outsourced labor to control and keep your costs down, you probably actually have a bigger competitor against you now than if you're just an independent uh, pro advisor that actually could say, hey, I'll take some of the work from QB Live. So this is actually, That's a- this could actually disrupt Australia even more. And then... Yeah, I think you have something there. And then, you know, we're talking about last week how TurboTax Live is bringing in new customers. Mm-hmm. This could help Intuit get a, a stake in the ground in Australia, right? Because this could get new people to use QuickBooks Online in Australia. We'll, we'll see. But uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether... Now the discussion on this is like, who's it, now that everybody understands and believes it's coming and know it's coming, now is people are wondering who's it going to disrupt. So, David, we haven't talked about bots in a while. I've got a bots story for you. Fake bots. Fake bots. And- okay. Yes, and this is not some startup. This is a big company. This is a story in the New York Times about Google Duplex. Have we talked about Google Duplex on the podcast? Um, I know I, I I love using it as an example of AI. We may not have talked about it, but I'm familiar with it. I, I can maybe try to give an example. Yeah, well, so the 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 big Google Duplex story was last year when uh, Sondar. Pichai, the CEO of Google, gave a demonstration of Google Duplex, which is the name they have for their AI, a voice assistant, calling a hair salon and booking an appointment on behalf of a Google customer all by itself. And the audience was just blown away that this AI could call a hair salon, talk to a human being, deal with some unusual stuff that happened in terms of the booking, and make the appointment. And some people were so blown away thought it was not real at all. It couldn't be real, right? That it had to have been fake. And my understanding that Google's also using the same technology to just call small businesses randomly and say, like, what are your hours this week? Or what are your hours today? And that's how they update their the, the Google searches. So when you, you, know, you search for a small business and it shows the hours are open, yep. the Google's apparently they're using this same robot to go and gather information about small businesses, their hours of operation, et cetera. Makes so much sense, right? So this is the uh, customer-facing uh, aspect of it they're experimenting with. And you can actually use Google Duplex right now. If you download the Google Assistant on your iOS or your Android device, you can ask it to make a dinner reservation for you and it will call a local restaurant and do it. And so the New York Times decided, hey, let's test this out. Let's see if it works. So they 
did an experiment. Uh, they made four bookings. Here's the rub. Out of four successful bookings with duplex, only only one was done by a robot. Three were done by people. So Google is using a call center to augment Google Duplex and to help it when it fails. Does this sound familiar, David? It's fake bots or it's human assisted bots. So it's, it's the same story that it was ran. It was a Bloomberg who ran that three or four weeks ago about Siri and Amazon Echo. Um, yeah, or the yeah. Amazon Alexa, like everybody, everybody's using like humans to help process right. some Be- of this. Because the AI is impressive, but it still can't do everything. So the New York Times reached out to Google and asked them after they discovered that humans were assisting the AI, how many of the calls are actually being done by a human. And Google said that about 25% of calls placed through duplex start with a human, and that about 15% of those that began with an automated system had a human intervene at some point. Now, the New York Times in their testing, they only had it flipped. They had 75% of their four calls were actually done by a human, and only one of them was completed successfully by an AI all by itself. But you know, this is a fake bot story, but it's also amazing because they posted the recording of the AI in its conversation with a restaurant owner, the one that worked, the 25% example where the AI worked successfully, yeah. and it is super impressive. And I want to play it for you. Do you want to listen? Yeah, absolutely. I got to hear this. Hello. Hello. Hi, I'm calling to make a reservation. I'm Google's automated booking service, so I'll record the call. Um, could I book a table for Tuesday the 21st? Okay. Hello. I'd like to make a reservation for a client for um, Tuesday the 21st. Okay. Actually, the, how many people? It's for 10 people. 10 people? Okay, what time? At 7 p.m. 7 p.m.? Okay. Uh, um, I need a table for 7 p.m. Okay, 7 p.m.? Okay. And then, yeah. are there any kids? I'm actually booking on behalf of a client, so I'm not too sure. Not too sure? Okay. Got it. Okay, so... Uh, please be on time at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I can put you in the uh, reservation book. So, see you on Tuesday. Oh, would you like the client's name now? Yes. The first name is Kate. Okay, Kate. Okay, what is the last name? Last name, Matt. Matt, okay. What is the telephone number? That was an AI. That was not a human being. Well, I mean, what's interesting about that, right? They, I think sh- short interactions like that are very um, predictable, how that conversation is going to go. It's kind of like scanning um, OCR on a business card. Right. Mm-hmm. Very, very easy because once you figure out where the phone number or the zip code is, you can work backwards and like there's the rest of the address. You look for a certain pattern, right? So there's a, a reservation phone call is always going to have some pattern to it, right? In general. Yep. That they can do that. But what I find really interesting is at the same time, if, if you're going to automate that from this side, if I'm a restaurant owner and I'm using an app like Open Table, when's Open Table going to have a bot answering those phone calls and handle, like, why is that restaurant owner? answering the phone and talking to another bot. Like the bots could just talk to each other and then you show <laughs> through a 
the bots talking to each other. That's funny. And it almost makes more sense for the restaurant owner to have a bot answering calls for taking in reservations. Well, I was out looking at apartments yesterday. And when I called one of the large corporate complexes, they told me that if I pressed one, they would text me so that I didn't have to stay on the phone and I could book my whole appointment that way. So I pressed one and I got a text message and I was able to book the whole appointment via a text message exchange. And it's possible that was all a completely automated system that was you know, just reading my responses and finding time in the calendar. Because when I got to the leasing office, the guy who was sitting there at the desk had no idea that I in particular was coming in He'd, and the appointment had been booked for him. So that could be a call center somewhere, so maybe human assisted, maybe artificial intelligence or a mix. It could be both. And that's the thing that I think the takeaway from this story and all the other coverage of bots that we have done is that right now AI is getting really good, but it's still a mix of human and, and machine and it's really hard to know when. And so it's, I think it's important as, business, as businesses that we ask and that we find out. Maybe as consumers, we don't care, but as businesses, as accountants protecting people's data, we need to know when humans are looking at this stuff and when it's not humans. So there's a, another uh, AI product. It's uh, called Roger AI. They are uh, an accounting automation tool that they just raised $7.35 million. Uh, a couple of interesting things I think from this is who is part of the raise. So everybody remember Dan Wernickoff, the former GM of QuickBooks? Uh, he's investing. And TurboTech. He's investing. He's back this Series A. So this is a company out of Denmark. Now they obviously did their round in San Francisco. So now they have a San Francisco office. And looking at their website, looking at the product, it kind of feels like, obviously I have not tried it. I haven't played with it. But it feels a little bit like a Zapier or an if-then if this, then that type product. And a little bit like an auto entry and a bill.com and some OC, an Expensify, kind of some OCR products. And then you can build custom workflows on top of your accounting system and integrations. Well, like what does it do? Give me an example. Let's say uh, I take a picture of a receipt. Yeah. The receipt needs to be categorized and get into my QuickBooks. But maybe that receipt, maybe that receipt also needs to have three people uh, prove it before it gets billed to a customer for some job. Mm -hmm. And so you can automate all these processes and then maybe it kicks it over to Slack and then somebody in Slack could say, yes, approve that. So I think it's still pretty rudimentary. They don't integrate with many things as of yet. It's like Dropbox, QuickBooks, it's like six apps it integrates with. So so the, the depth of the integrations is not a lot, but they're playing it up to, hey, you can use this to automate processes inside your small business, but then you as the accountant could use this to automate processes you're doing for your clients. And so if I really step back and think about this, if you look back to when we had the BotKeeper demo, and internally, Enrico and his team at BotKeeper are building all these automation tools in-house, right? To to massage data, touch data, move data, kick off processes. And that's how BotKeeper is able to um, augment the humans, right? That are helping out, right? They have these automation tools helping out along the way. Mm-hmm. Imagine if BotKeeper took all those automation tools, whatever their tech stack is, and said, hey, we're going to just sell that as a separate product. And you could buy tools that smell, taste similar to what BotKeeper showed us. That kind of what feels like what Roger AI is here. But I don't, I, other than that, I can, I'm only judging from what I've seen on the website. There's no video. I kind of explored around the integrations, kicked around, but I have not signed up. It's so new, like the QuickBooks Zero 
integrations say coming soon. The build.com integration says coming soon. What they like don't every, have any every integration says every integration says coming soon. So I don't know what it actually connects to at this point. But I just thought it was interesting that you know Ben Rinnikoff you know jumped in on this. Well, and if you're interested in checking it out for yourself, head over to their website at Roger AI R O G E R dot AI. I've got some follow up on the security issues we talked about last week. You know, we talked about the city of Baltimore getting hacked. Okay. We've been talking about Walters Kluwer getting hacked. Well, another cloud hosting provider called Centrum has reported a systems breach. This was an article in the Journal of Accountancy published on Thursday, the 30th of May. Apparently, a whole week ago, on Friday the 24th, Centrum was hit by a malware attack. Now, Centrum, this is the first time I'm hearing about it, seems to be a virtual desktop, other cloud hosting provider for CPA firms. Okay, so they, so, so they do specialize in our space. Yes, specialize in accounting. Uh, on Thursday, they posted an official statement on their website describing this malware attack that happened a whole week before, uh, very similar to Walters Kluwer. And they actually said in their statement that it appears to be similar to the one that hit CCH, Citrix, Baltimore, and Philadelphia. And so I was curious to know, well, what is this virus that has hit CCH? Because we still don't know. Walters Kluwer hasn't told us what it is. Uh, and what, you know, it's, well, we, we projected, I think we talked about that. I found that second article that was out there of that other malware Two, three weeks ago, I think we had a link to it. Yeah. I'll well, see if I can find well it. apparently there's a connection between all of these malware attacks, uh, Baltimore, CCH, uh, and this one now with Centrum. New York Times, again, doing some really great investigative journalism, has a story up on their site called In Baltimore and Beyond, a Stolen NSA Tool Wrecks Havoc. Apparently, all of these attacks are linked to a tool a hacking tool that the NSA developed called Eternal Blue. That's a key component in all of these malware attacks. Before it leaked, they lost they lost control of it in 2017. I, I had kind of heard about this before, but now this is really refreshing my memory, and I can't believe what a disaster this has been. Apparently, before it leaked, Eternal Blue was one of the most useful exploits in the NSA's cyber arsenal. According to three former NSA operators who spoke on the condition of anonymity, analysts spent almost a year finding a flaw in Microsoft software and writing the code to target it. Eternal Blue was so valuable, former NSA employees said, that the agency never seriously considered alerting Microsoft about the vulnerabilities and held onto it for more than five years before the breach forced its hand. This Eternal Blue hack has been used by state hackers in North Korea, Russia, and China. It was behind the WannaCry attack in 2017, which destroyed systems in the British healthcare system, German railroads, 200,000 organizations around the world. Russia used it as part of the NotPetya attack, which cost FedEx more than $400 million and cost Merck, the pharmaceutical company, $670 million. Uh, one of the cybersecurity experts interviewed in the story called this whole episode quote, the most destructive and costly NSA breach in history, more damaging than the better known leak in 2013 from Edward Snowden. And the NSA and the FBI have declined to comment for the story in the New York Times and have basically denied responsibility or that they should be held accountable. Admiral Michael S. Rogers, who was director of the NSA during this whole leak, suggested in remarks that the agency shouldn't be blamed. He compared it to Toyota. He said, quote, if Toyota makes pickup trucks and someone takes a pickup truck, 
welds an explosive device onto the front, crashes it through a perimeter and into a crowd of people. Is that Toyota's responsibility? Unquote. And then he continues, the NSA wrote an exploit that was never designed to do what was done. Unquote. Is this, this is amazing to me that this is now, this is known and uh, we're just kind of like, okay with it. And nobody, and, and nobody, nobody's talking about it, right? This will never make mainstream media. And like, this is kind of a big deal because this is like, if, if it's that powerful of a tool, right, that we created, we being our country, yeah, <laughs> things our taxpayers pay for, like the, that means everybody's at risk. Oh, yeah. And for, right? for international listeners who are not familiar with the NSA, uh, they are the most secretive spy agency we've got in the United States, probably using their artificial intelligence and bots to listen in on this podcast right now. So <laughs> National Security Administration. So, uh, A, uh, good find. What a story. Uh, very, very amazing story there. Um, and the the other interesting thing I, I think I'd, I'd tie this back to is like, maybe this is an argument of not upgrading the IRS's computer system. <laughs> oh, because they are using mainframes that are not susceptible to modern hacking? Yeah. Yes, right? It's so much legacy technology that nobody has this, the technical skills to hack them. Well, here's the thing is that the flaw in Windows that allowed these attacks to happen, that this exploit utilizes has been patched. Microsoft patched it. But the problem is that there are so many systems out there that have not been patched, that have not been upgraded by the people responsible for security, that it still exists. You can still use this tool to hack into computers all over the world. Okay, I'm not going to cuss, but I want to slam my hand on the desk. Like That is a bunch of crap. So I'm an accounting firm. I know that running my own IT is a risk. I I risk I have to keep all my machines updated. I have to keep all my patches. So I'm going to go outsource this to a hosting company because they promised me to be my IT department. And they're not <laughs> patching the machines. You're going to have to believe that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is the thing. Like, we don't know for sure. But if Walters Kluwer, if CCH was the victim of this hack, that means that they weren't properly patching their PCs. I've got another story that'll make your no blood boil. No comments on it. Sorry. <laughs> you know, don't give me fired up more now. Come on now. I've got another story that'll make your blood boil. Or maybe it'll just make you give up on humanity. This is another security one. So are you familiar with the concept of social engineering? Yeah. So I'm like, hey, Mary, I call up the front desk of, the, of an office. And I'm like, hey, Mary, I was wondering, um, can you give me your password? Because of blah, blah, blah. And they just give it to me. Yeah. I mean, it's what happened to Podesta, basically, with the Clinton emails. Right. Because people are the weakest link in the chain of, of security, right? And so psychologists at the University of Luxembourg have been studying social engineering as a way of, of hacking, like how effective is it? They did a large scale study involving over 1,200 people to investigate how people are manipulated into sharing their passwords with complete strangers in return for small gifts. What they did is they, uh, they stood out on the University of Luxembourg campus wearing uh, University of Luxembourg branded bags, right? So they looked like they were affiliated with the university. And they randomly selected passersby and asked them about their attitude toward computer security and then also asked them for their password. So they were carrying this, the study, the people conducting the study were carrying University of Luxembourg bags, but were otherwise unknown to the respondents. Now, David, guess how many people uh, gave out their passwords? Uh, I say that's 50%. I mean, this is, I'm just guessing. It's, it's... <laughs> yeah, well, because I already hinted that it's so bad, right? So they varied the experiments. So to some people, they just asked them for their passwords. Some people, they gave them chocolate and they would do it before or after or during the interview. 
here's the crazy part. 30% of participants revealed their passwords in exchange for chocolate. So like, hey, here's a piece of candy. Give me your password. Okay. Like that's, that's the, the test, the scenario. So that was, that was if they received the chocolate after the question was asked. Like, I'm going to, hey, will you give me your password? We've got chocolate here. Now, if the chocolate was given beforehand, 43.5% of the respondents shared their password with the interviewer. And the willingness to divulge passwords increased further if the chocolate was offered immediately before the participants were asked to disclose their password. So anywhere between, depending on how you do it, if you give people chocolate, you can get their passwords 30 to 48% of the time, which is just insane to me that it's that easy to get people to give up their passwords. And it seems like a very cost-efficient way to, to hack into right. things. I, I mean, if you want to hack into a city, like the city of Baltimore, just go to a government building, set up a table, put on a city of Baltimore t-shirt, and hand out chocolate in exchange for people's passwords. It's This is absolutely mind-numbingly insane. It makes that NSA tool that we probably spent billions of dollars of taxpayers' money on to hack into people's computers. They could have just done this. And it shows the importance. You harp on this every single time we talk about security of multi-factor authentication. And it's, it's not just because somebody might steal your password. It's because your people working in your firm or at your tech company might be dumb enough and are, I mean, I don't know, maybe dumb is harsh, but just people are not thinking they they're 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 just willing to give away these passwords and we have to protect our companies from our own staff more than anyone else. Yeah, people need to put their passwords like at the level of like their their loved ones. Right? Yeah. Like hey, would you trade uh, education. Your, your, your child for some chocolate? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we need some education here. Like this is just this is just ridiculous. So, um that is my crazy ridiculous security news for the week. Wow. Okay, so I have something cool. Something cool I, I, I saw this All week. Right. That, yes. I, I think it's really cool. So you, are you, uh, you're an account bookkeeper. You like to use two screens, right? Yep. What happens when you go to uh, Starbucks? Uh, I have to bring my giant screen with me and find a plug. <laughs> I've seen guys, people doing that. those guys who bring the huge 22-inch <laughs> screen. To, I've seen that as well. I have, yeah. okay. So anyways, Asus has a new ZenBook Pro Duo. We'll have it in the show links. You can see the photos, everything. I looks like oh this is so cool coolest this is the accountant's bookkeeper's laptop so imagine if you took the keyboard slid it down towards towards your belly Mm -hmm. and then that upper half of where the keyboard is you now have a half size screen right but then to the right you have a touchpad that's also like a screen so now you have a 10 key still as well wow and so you could have the bottom half maybe that's um the email that came in and you're reviewing it while in the top half you have QuickBooks open and you're doing some data entry or whatever you I'm assuming you're still doing data entry, right? Yeah. But you really get that, that benefit of a huge, of having, basically it's like a monitor and a half, but you still have the same form factor of a laptop. And what I like about this is that it solves a problem, which is you need two screens, but you don't necessarily need a full size second screen. You just need a place where you can put something that you're referencing, right? Like, so part of a document or part of a web page that you're looking at while you work on a full size screen. This is really cool. The picture looks amazing. It's called the Asus ZenBook Pro Duo. Click on the link in the show notes and check out the pictures of this thing. It looks Fantastic. This is this is the sort of thing that might actually get me to switch off my Mac. Yeah, like it, it is a this is a bookkeeper's laptop uh, or accountant's laptop. 
by far. This is uh, totally slick. Um, Asus, if you would like to uh, send a review copy, uh, please contact <laughs> us on Twitter. Yeah, send one to David and send one to Blake. Well, even for the podcast, right? Because I can have the stories I'm talking about up there, but our recording software could be running on the bottom half. Yes, yes, that's beautiful. And you could be monitoring it. I love it. Maybe this becomes a business expense now. <laughs> we have to buy these there you for go. us. Uh, it, 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 yes, get one of these for sure. All right. What else? Uh, what else do I have? I have a. Um, oh, I have a story about raising prices. Let's hear about that. Okay. So two things happened this week. When I saw this article um, in Saster, so Saster is a, uh, a website community for people that build SaaS software. So all the app developers would probably go to Saster and read the blog post there. Right. It makes sense, right? So this uh, article is titled, When You Raise Prices More Than a Smidge, They At Least Look at Another Vendor. And so I think the takeaway in this article is that, and I'm just going to quote it, what I think is most important is how material price increases make your customers look. Look at other solutions. You've just planted a seed. You've sent them on a fact-finding mission to talk to your competitors. And then the premise is, if, if you're just charging for your SaaS app every, every month, X price, and people are just happily using it, they're never going to pause and think like, what's the value I'm getting out of that product, right? They're just going to keep chugging away, right. right? And you can maybe, you know, incrementally raise it a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. But if you do it a material raise, people are going to question, right? And then, yeah. well, coincidentally, me personally, I had that experience this week. Oh, what happened? So I got an email from Intuit about my QuickBooks subscription. So my oh no, you got hit with an increase. I got hit with a price increase, and so my price is going. I think I'm paying right now. It's twenty nine dollars a month for my uh -huh. QuickBooks Online Plus. On July first, I've been told it's going up to seventy dollars a month. That's a steep increase. It's over a hundred percent increase. So for me, like I feel like I probably get three hundred sixty dollars of value a year from QBO. But when I start stepping back and I look at $840 for a year, yeah, that yeah. all of a sudden becomes my biggest business expense. <laughs> it's more expensive than my the podcasting software we're using. It's more expensive than the social media tools I use to create the artwork for the podcast. It's more expensive than um, Canva, right? And yeah. it's the most expensive. It's Microsoft Office I get a year for 99 bucks, right? Or 106 or whatever that is. Also, QuickBooks is my most expensive business or my most expensive business expense, right? Now, with that said, like, I'm not going to change, right? Like, I'm, I'm too old to learn a new product. I'm not going to shift, right? Oh, David, don't cut yourself short. <laughs> I don't have the energy for it, right? But I'm, I'm going to try and downgrade my plan because I'm not using the features at that level. Uh -huh. And the only feature I am using is the 1099 subcontractor feature. Now, are you familiar with that in QBO? Yeah, yeah, you sent me one, right? Because oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, you so, had to, you had to, you had to pay me some uh, money, and it was over the six hundred dollar threshold. Threshold, and so yeah, it was, actually, that's one of the coolest things I have to say about QuickBooks Online is I got an email saying I need your W nine, and I just clicked the button and I put that in, and it went right into your uh, QBO file, right? Which it's a really cool feature, but ultimately, what that's really doing. It's driving subcontractors to sign up for QuickBooks Online right. self-employed. So, and I would argue that that feature should just be free on all QBO plans because I, <laughs> I used it with somebody else, and she signed up for QB self-employed. Right. Right. So, so, so that's the one feature I'm using of Plus that I'd argue should be a free feature. And then, not to mention, and this is the I think the kicker for me when I think about the value. Right. I send everything through auto entry. 
Auto entry is essentially doing all the work for 12 bucks a month and shoving the transactions into QBO. Right. And, and like, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's such a huge price increase. It's just the reaction to it. I'm just like, and then I saw somebody reply to my tweet about this and they said, Oh, you can't downgrade. You can't. So I guess I'm paying it. Well, or bringing it, bringing it back to this article on Saster, maybe you shop around. Hey, I'm sure that there's somebody at our sp- episode sponsor zero who would really love to talk to you david (laughs) but uh, so so you know this is um this is a really good question is when is it good to raise prices and when does it do more harm than good in the software world i think it is debatable that like sometimes you just want to take your legacy customers and leave them at the price they were at rather than disrupt things the way that you know your your relationship with quickbooks is question is you're questioning it at this point given the massive doubling of the $840 of value like I don't see that like that value is hard to measure and and I I think it is important for tech companies to really think carefully before they raise prices because it's the incremental cost to serve a customer for into it for most SaaS companies is not that much right your cost of sales is not very high once you've got a customer in the accounting world if we're talking about raising prices in your accounting firm or bookkeeping firm, in my experience, and I was guilty of this myself, most firms are really bad about raising prices and are seriously underpricing their legacy customers. And by legacy, I just mean customers you've had for a long time. We are not good at raising prices every year, especially the way that Intuit has been. And we need to do more of it. And in that case, you actually want your customers to go out and shop for other options. It's really an easy equation. Uh, you just, you know, you look at your customer base and you say, all right, if I raise prices across the board by 20%, would I lose 20% of my customers? And if the answer is no, that you would lose less than 20%, you should raise your prices. Yeah. And I think that's probably the equation to its day, right? And it's, 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 it's talked about it, that with the QuickBooks Advanced. Right. right. Pushing. Exactly. And it, it's important to be raising prices always because you need to create capacity in your firm for taking on new clients. And it's way easier to create capacity by raising prices and shifting other some of your customers to other firms that are willing to service them for less, for instance, uh, than to go out and hire new people. I mean, it's just a very easy way to increase your uh, revenue and your margins without having to grow your firm. It's so much more efficient. So, yeah. uh, but, you know, the problem is most firms don't do a, Make, they don't make the time and they have these personal relationships with their clients and they feel bad doing it, right? Especially, I find so many bookkeepers feel bad about charging what they're really worth and they don't. And that's why they don't, they, 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 they're just not making a lot of money. Yeah. And I think, like, I mean, I'm getting a 60-day warning about this or whatever it is from the email. Um, but I, I, somebody said this at the AICPA um, Executive Roundtable and I don't know it was from the mid-sized firms, small to mid-sized firms. And I don't know who said it. And I apologize if you're listening. If you said it, tweet at me and let me know. But essentially, uh, this accountant uh, said that they're okay with companies raising prices. It's okay to do. But give people a 12-month heads up. Because right now, if you're an accountant or bookkeeping, if you've gone to fixed uh, pricing model and you've mm-hmm. calculated your costs and you're rolling those out to your client, you need a year window to re- re-up those contracts you have with your own clients. You can't just give them a 60-day warning, be like, hey, by the way, QuickBooks went up in price. I need to charge you more, right? And yeah. so so price every, price increases are going to happen. I think everybody knows that. They accept them. It's just 100% price, percent price increases 
do feel a little on the crazy side. Be a lot. Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, a teeny bit upsetting uh, to, to have to bite the bullet on that, but I probably will still pay it. You know, cause I just, the, the headache, the headache of switching. Right. Be, be yeah. Too much. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge pain to change your accounting system. Well, David, that's all I've got this week. How about you? I think that kind of wraps things up here. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's it. So folks want to get in touch with you online, David, where's the best place for them to go? To use the Twitter. I'm at David Leary. And I am at Blake T. Oliver. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, on Facebook. You can follow the Cloud Accounting Podcast on Facebook. Just search for us there. And if you're going to be at ZeroCon, we'll be there uh, in June. We'll also... I'll also be at Scaling New Heights. So if you want a Cloud Accounting sticker, podcast sticker, come find me. And I will be at AICP Engage starting on the 10th of June. So if you're going to be at any of those conferences, reach out to us on Twitter or message us elsewhere and let us know. We'd love to, I love to meet up with our listeners and, and, and chat with you all in person. It's fun. But you'll buy beers for every listener. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we won't do that. I think that's a wrap this week. That's it from me. I'll see you next week, David. All right. Bye everybody. Bye.